what is the nature and the state of the human condition? Is it depraved or is it merely a tendency or an inclination toward sin? It's a fair question. Are humans born under the wrath of God or are they born righteous, innocent, not guilty? Are all men born guilty in Adam or do they become guilty at some point along the way? Do all humans start off like Adam when he was initially, originally created without a sin nature and righteous in the eyes of God? Welcome to the Reformed Rant. The Reformed Rant is a podcast that focuses on proclaiming and defending the truth of the Christian worldview. With, with every generation, a new challenge to protect the foundation of the church emerges. We must educate all over again on the very same things. Nothing new on the same things, the things which have been given to us, which have been revealed to us in Scripture. We must protect that which has been laid down by the apostles and prophets. We must stop the mouths of those who oppose and with gentleness and patience lovingly guide new believers into the truth. I bring the tools of biblical theology, faithful apologetics, and a theologically and biblically informed philosophical framework to bear in an attempt to answer these questions and their implications on society, thereby calling the unbeliever, the opponent, to repentance, as well as working diligently to edify and equip the believer. Dingus, and today I am continuing my series of episodes on the teachings of the theological system invented by Leighton Flowers, known as provisionism. Now put your thinking cap on, and let's ask the question. We're going to continue to ask this question through all ten articles of Leighton Flowers' system, belief system. Is provisionism faithful to the text of Scripture? We're not only going to ask that question, we're going to ask the question, is, is provision ism, a, um, a, a coherent representation of the clear teachings of the Bible regarding Christianity and the sort of God that exists, is it a coherent representation of the Christian doctrine of sin? Is it a... Uh, coherent representation of the nature of fallen humanity? These are questions that should concern every single Christian. So let's, let's get on with it. Article 2 
over on Soteriology 101, which is the website. Uh, Leighton Flowers uh, outlines article number two on uh, the sinfulness of man. And he says this, We affirm that because of the fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and environment inclined towards sin. And that every person who is capable of moral action will sin. Each person's sin alone brings the wrath of a holy God. Each person's sin alone brings the wrath of a holy God. Broken fellowship with him, ever worsening selfishness, and destructiveness, death, and condemnation to an eternity in hell. That is the affirmation. The denial reads like this. We deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. While no sinner is remotely capable of achieving salvation through his own effort, we deny that any sinner is saved apart from a free response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel. All right, so <clears throat> let's, let's ask the question, do all human beings inherit a nature and an environment that is merely inclined to sin? Second question, are those who reside in Adam under the wrath of God? Now, there are some things as Christians, and, and third question, are our children born in Adam? There are some, there are some issues in, within Christianity that, that are not quite clear. Uh, there is some teaching in, in the Bible that seems to be a little bit more challenging to kind of understand than other teachings in the Bible. And those things that, that we see that are clearly revealed in Scripture, some things which are clearly revealed, we would say that every Christian is duty-bound to affirm the clear teachings of Scripture, but not all teachings of Scripture are equally clear. So when we're dealing with things that are questionable, that are more challenging to interpret, to understand, uh, apocalyptic literature, symbolism, and things of this nature, uh, we would extend grace because we're all in the same boat trying to get our arms around what this is actually conveying. Uh, that said, and, and we also, of course, believe that God extends the same kind of grace. That said, if something is clearly revealed and taught in Scripture, it becomes an essential component of Christian belief. You are obligated to believe what God has clearly revealed in Scripture. For example, Matthew and Luke both tell us that Jesus was born of a virgin. Regardless of what that might do to your modern sensibilities, that a, a virgin could actually be pregnant and have a baby, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that when Matthew and Luke wrote that narrative, the historical record of the birth of Christ, they did so under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this was the divine record. And essentially what, what I'm saying is that this is God telling us about how Jesus Christ entered the world. And God says that a virgin girl gave birth to Jesus Christ. 
Now that's clear. <clears throat> that's clear. There's you cannot read those records and have find any ambiguity in that teaching. Well, if that's the case, if you if you look at that and you go, well, yeah, that's clear. Your obligation is to believe it. And if you reject it, if you decide you just can't believe it, and you're going to find something else to do with that text. Well, that is reason for the community of faith to look at your profession and your claim to faith with great suspicion and to subject you to discipline. You cannot remain in the Christian community if it is your practice and behavior to take the clear teachings of Scripture and reject them, regardless of what your method is for rejecting them. Okay, so as we move along this through this series, some of this, some of this will come back into play as we talk about things that are that are clearly revealed. And this is mostly for uh, not the minions of Leighton Flower who are absolutely sold out on provisionism no matter what. The God of Calvinism to them is repugnant. The system of Calvinism to them is repugnant. Uh, and it doesn't matter what I say, they're going to hang on to it. This isn't to fight with them. This isn't to debate them. This is for everybody else. This is for people who are actually coming to this subject and ask, asking the question, is this really true? I mean, is this? how does this work? What is the nature of fallen man? This is typically for Christians who really haven't been exposed to these things quite yet, um, regardless of how long you've been a Christian. But now, you're starting to become exposed to them. In the age of the internet, these things are out there, and you're starting to bump into these issues. Of starting, starting in your studies, you're starting to have some questions. Maybe you've had them for a while, and you've just kind of like maybe put them on the shelf um, and haven't really dealt with them. But now you're starting to deal with them. My hope is that I can, I can help you navigate this this area. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 16 tells us that Paul wrote some things that were difficult to understand, which some people twist and subvert to their own destruction. So here's the thing. If we come upon a text in the scripture that's hard to understand, we should be very humble. In, in admitting that, look, this is difficult to understand exactly what's being said here. We, we should resist the modern, the postmodern, <laughs> we should resist the modern American uh, idea that we have a right to just make it say whatever we want. If you, if you look at our culture and its influence, people are making truth out of nothing. They something becomes true just because they wave their magic wand and want it to be true. We have, we have people in our culture now who are saying you can have a penis and be a woman. All right. Now that's, I mean, that's out. It's, that's the culture that we're in. So the, the challenge for the believer in this culture is to resist. And that's easy to resist for most of us. For a true believer, that's easy to resist. There are nuances, however, where we might not be consciously aware of the fact that we're actually employing the same kind of tactics that the world's using when it comes to truth. 
And as a Christian, we have to stop and, and, and recognize we do not have permission to just make the Bible say what it wants. And we have an ethical obligation to desperately, diligently, earnestly seek an understanding of the Scripture that's based on what the Scripture is actually teaching. We have an ethical duty. We have a moral obligation to do that. You and I do not have the right to just land anywhere on a text of Scripture. And I, I understand that in this era, uh, you know, we, re we, we, re we, we agree to disagree. We, was, we respectfully disagree with, with one another on this position or that position, but no one ever talks about the moral component in hermeneutics and it's massive. The Bible talks about it. I just quoted Peter. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. We need to talk about it, and we need to do more than that. We need to practice it. We need to extend grace and mercy to one another in some of these differences, but we also need to continually keep in view the fear of the Lord, because it is thus saith the Lord that we are handling. All right. In order to answer these questions about the nature of, of, of fallen human beings, we turn to Scripture. And the first Scripture that we turn to is Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, and I'm going to read it. Uh, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, filled with these things full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Does this sound like a nature? Does this describe a nature that you would say is merely inclined to sin? It sounds to me like a group that is wholly given over to sin. If you just let this description stand on its own two feet without trying to do anything with it, without spinning it, softening it, weakening it, just let it stand. The next verse that I want to call your attention to as you're looking at this and, and questioning is Paul's description further in Romans chapter 3. As it is written, verses 10 through 18, there is none righteous, not even one, Paul says. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And just when you think the description of fallen humanity couldn't get worse, you go from Romans 1 to Romans 3, and, and it does. He says there is none. Dikaios is the, is the Greek word, not even one. Well, what does dikaios mean? It, it, mean? it means to be in accord with a high standard of rectitude, to be upright, to be just, to be fair, to be innocent, to be righteous. And as Paul looks out among Jews and Gentiles, both people groups, he says, there is none. They have become useless. A kreao, to become a liability to society because of moral depravity. Not innocent, not even one. No understanding, no seeking of God, completely useless, no doing of good, not even one. They are destructive liars, bitter, angry, violent, miserable, filled with chaos, and without any fear of God. These are descriptions the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is providing Christians regarding the nature of fallen humanity to a person. Now, does this sound like someone for whom sin is just an inclination, a bad habit, a tendency? Is that the sense that you get from reading those sections of Scripture? Yet, Leighton Flowers says that we have inherited a nature that is inclined to sin. Now, I understand that this is also part of the Baptist faith and message, and I disagree with the Baptist faith and message's description on the nature of fallen man. It is not just inclined to sin. If I read Paul rightly, he clearly has a different perspective on the, the condition and nature of fallen men. To be inclined means to have a tendency to a particular aspect, state, or character, or action. A tendency, according to Webster. That's all. Bad habits. A tendency. A proclivity. Now, does the inclination or mere tendency to sin justify the conclusion that all men will sin? Because that's what the article goes on to say that because of this human nature, that this inclination towards sin, that all men will sin. Well, okay, so let's, 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 let's talk about that. From a logical standpoint, does the tendency to commit a certain act ensure that the act will happen? Does a tendency in, hum in humanity ensure that all humans are going to actually commit that particular act. Humans have a tendency to engage in sexual immorality. Does this mean all humans are going to cheat on their spouse? I don't think it does, because they don't. So logically speaking, from a logical standpoint, and I'm not talking, some people who are not trained in 
in logic. They've never studied, they've never been to a course on critical thinking. They've never studied formal logic. They've never read a textbook on formal logic. They've never listened to any lectures on formal logic. When I talk about logic, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about what so many people think is, is uh, would, would be more uh, or closer to the sense of common sense. When most people say, well, logically speaking, they're talking about, well, co you know, common sense. They're not actually referring to formal logic. So when I use the expression logically or logic from a logical standpoint or a rational standpoint, I'm not talking about common sense. I'm talking about the laws of logic. I'm talking about solid, sound, human reasoning, rational thinking, rules, laws, principles that should serve to guide good thinking, right? And if, you, if you've never really looked into that, then, then you, sh you should. You should go buy Copy's uh, textbook on logic and read it like four or five times. And, and take notes and underline and highlight and pay attention to, to uh, the study of logic because this is how we ought to think. God is a rational being. He's not irrational. There are no contradictions in God. There are no contradictions in, in the revelation of Scripture. So, logically speaking, from the fact that humanity has a tendency to sin, it does not follow that all humans will sin. Having a tendency to do something does not guarantee that you're actually going to do it. Even an alcoholic may have a tendency to pick up a bottle of whiskey and drink it if you put it in, in front of them. Logically speaking, there's no guarantee that they're actually going to do that. It's not necessary. It doesn't follow logically that they have to do this. You cannot extract that kind of certainty from the sense of the word incline or tendency. Okay. So there's a problem with that word. It's, it's softening the Apostle Paul's description of the human condition. And that's a, that's a real problem. That's a fact, right? That's a debating point. Now, if, if someone wants to refute uh, or uh, introduce an, uh, an opposing viewpoint on this, well, then they, they need to address that issue. They need to prove logically that I'm wrong. And they can't in this particular case because the laws of logic are what they are. Like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Argue with that. You can't. Again, I have to ask, does it sound like Paul is merely describing human tendency in Romans? Or does it sound more ominous than that? More significant? More sobering than just some tendency? Just a, a habit? Be honest. And let the text inform you. Don't take anything to that text. Extract from the text. Don't insert into the text. Just extract. Now, Flowers wants to move from sin as a tendency to sin as an, an inevitability. That it is necessary. That it is inevitable. That it's going to happen, logically. But you cannot 
make that move, logically speaking. Behavioral tendency does not necessitate behavioral certainty. Okay? Now, there is a reason all humans sin, and it isn't because they're merely inclined in that direction. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That is the order, and we have to drill that into our heads. But that is contrary to what Leighton Flowers and provisionism teaches. But it is exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches. It is exactly what the apostles and the prophets teach. It's what God has revealed to us in his word about our sinful nature. It is because their nature, our nature, is such that we will sin as soon as the cognitive faculties reach that capability. The instant a person becomes cognitively self-aware, he or she universally fails to acknowledge the Creator. We don't start off acknowledging the Creator. We start off rebelling against the Creator. This begins as early as two years old. In fact, there is no point when a child's behavior is morally pure, only to eventually slip into being morally evil. Now, I'm going to say something here that that uh, there is a there is a a view that would contend that it is possible for God to regenerate an infant, and I'm. I, the purpose of this podcast is not to deal with that. We would admit that children are born sinners. This is the biblical view. They're born sinners. They don't become sinners. Accepting the fact that there's that debate, that some infants may actually be regenerated while they're still Infants. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into whether I believe that, whether I don't believe that, but we're going to set that aside and assume that has not happened. And if that has not happened, then that infant is a little sinner. They, they don't become a sinner. The progression of the natural development of evil is just that, natural. If that infant hasn't been regenerated like anyone else, then that infant is going to grow up to be a sinner. Not because it has an inclination to sin, but because it is a sinner. And this is universal. Claiming that this is due to a mere tendency in human nature is insufficient as far as explanations go. It is far more, far more profound than that. Logically, this doesn't work. Psychologically, it doesn't work. Scripturally, it certainly doesn't work. To call sin a mere inclination or tendency is out of step with what the Apostle Paul writes here, also in Ephesians chapter 4 and throughout the Scripture. It's out of step with Scripture. It's out of step with psychology. It's out of step with simple human reason. It's out of step, out of step with empirical observation. Does a person's individual sin, 
alone bring the wrath of God because this is the other claim. This is a real problem. Now, when provisionism is gets annoyed uh, because people say that it's semi-Pelagian and in some cases outright Pelagianism, uh, it's earned that uh, mark, if you will. Because when you say that the wrath of God does not abide on a person until they sin, you're claiming that children are born innocent, innocent, and with a nature that only tends to sin, but is not sinful. There's a difference. To say that someone is born with a sinful nature is to say that they will sin the minute they have the opportunity, because that's that is their nature. It is their nature to sin. It is not just their nature to be inclined to sin. It is their nature to sin. Follow me here. Death, death is a product of divine wrath due to the fall of man in sin, right? And we're dealing with, with infants. We're dealing with the fact that the wrath of God, according to Leighton Flowers, does not abide on infants because they haven't sinned yet. When a person dies, they are essentially experiencing the consequences of divine wrath. This is what the scripture teaches. Death is here because sin is here. We have all sinned. Right? Now, babies sin by way of being in the covenant with Adam, being born in that covenant arrangement, and Adam is their head. So their sin is an imputed guilt. They are guilty because Adam was guilty. And as such, because they are under the guilt of Adam, they die. Otherwise, they shouldn't die. If they are born innocent, they shouldn't die because death is the result of the wrath of God for sin. If babies are not natural born sinners with a sin nature by covenantal arrangement, then how is it just for God to subject them to death? The wages of sin, according to the Bible, is death. All death, not just spiritual death. We die because we are born in sin under the curse of a fallen humanity. Romans 6, 23, the ways of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Our nature doesn't change as we grow. Our nature is what it is from the moment we're born. It's that human nature until the moment we die. And if God does not regenerate that nature, then it is a nature uh, of wrath. To say that humans have an inclination or uh, to sin or tendency towards sin is a departure from how the Bible describes the human condition and its relationship with sin. Second, there's no logical, logical explanation for why all humans sin if all they have is just an inclination or tendency to sin. This is an insufficient explanation for the human condition as we see it in the world today. 
We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's the issue here. Okay. Now let's shift gears to the denial. We've covered the affirmation. And I think given enough evidence to cause anyone to step back and say, wow, yeah, the Bible's description of the fallen human person and, and provisionism's description are really different. Really, really different. You have to pick one. I'm going to stick with Paul. Denial. In the denial, we have to, the first question we have to ask is, do fallen sinners have a liberated and free will? Because the denial is that uh, man, uh, the, the will of man has not been impacted by the fall. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. What do you mean free? What does it mean to be free? Even the Jews had, uh, took, took exception to what Christ said. What, what do you mean free? We are free. We're not in bondage. I guess they forgot about the Romans that were right there around the corner. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. What does Jesus mean? If, if we're not in bondage, then what is Jesus saying we're going to be freed from? Romans 6.17 says this, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Well, how did that come about? Well, Reformed theology and scripture would teach that God re rebirths us. We become born of God, born from above. And when a person's nature is regenerated, when God rips out the heart of stone and places in a heart of flesh, that heart now becomes obedient to the teachings of God. The stony heart is a disobedient heart. And so long as the stony heart's there, that is the stony heart. The stony heart does not decide to go, oh, I'm going to become obedient, and then it becomes a heart of flesh. That's not the metaphor. That's not the picture that Scripture gives us. The picture that Scripture draws is of God reaching into your chest and ripping out your heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. It is a work of God. That is what Jesus meant in John 3 when he said, you must be born again. In that act of God, when God moves through the Holy Spirit to do that through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that heart becomes obedient, trusting, committed, loyal. But it's the work of God. Otherwise, you have a heart of stone and you are in bondage to sin. Romans 6.20 Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Again, that word slave of sin. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. What do we mean when we say that the human will was not affected by the fall? When the description that the Bible places on Sinners is that they are in bondage. Bondage. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That stony heart, hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. Which the law of God says repent from your sin. The stony heart doesn't do that. It does not do that. For it is not even able to do that. The stony heart can't do that. The fleshly man can't do that. Something has to change before that happens. That heart has to be regenerated. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God while they're in the flesh. And you, go, you cannot go from being in the flesh to not being in the flesh without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit making it so. Period. It is claimed by men of disrepute that God would never command us to do what we are not able to do. Now you've heard this, and that seems to make sense. That seems to resonate with you when you think about it. Would God command somebody to do something that they can't do? And you're, you're immediately inclined tempted to believe that argument. But let's examine that argument to see if it's true or not. Just because something initially makes sense to us does not mean that it actually is true and in the grand scheme of things really does make sense. These men have obviously given little thought to the commandments and the law as a whole. Is it not the case that no man but Christ could keep the law perfectly? And is it not also the case that all men are commanded to keep it perfectly without breaking the smallest part? And the answer is yes. We are all commanded to keep every law in the Mosaic Covenant. Every, all 613 laws perfectly. We are commanded not to break any of them. But the Bible tells us that just isn't possible. So much for the view that God would never ask us to do something that we just can't do. Apparently, he, he can and he has done that. The claim that this makes God unjust overlooks the entire purpose of the law for which the law, which was to show us that we are great sinners in need of a great savior. The hermeneutics of provisionism lacks a covenantal framework and as such is sloppy and results in an incoherent representation of Christ. Now, I know those are some, probably some concepts that some of you may not be terribly familiar with. If you have questions or comments, feel free to leave uh, those comments on the uh, blog site, Reformed Reasons, on Facebook, um, or even in the, if you're listening to the podcast in, uh, in, in, in the app, the Anchor app, uh, you can ask questions and, and I'll do my best to respond. So our, that answers the question regarding the will. Now, are all men born guilty or are they born innocent? There's no neutral ground where righteousness is concerned. You're either born a righteous person and become a sinner or you are, a, you are born a sinner and maybe, perhaps, will become a righteous person 
God willing. There is no state of neutrality between guilt and innocence or righteous and unrighteous. As logic would tell us, it's either A or not A. Romans 5.18 says this. We again turn to scripture to answer this question. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation or guilt. It's the word guilt in the Greek. To all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification. Innocence. Release of that guilt. Righteousness. Declared innocent. Justification of life to all men. One transgression, you didn't need any more. You didn't need any more. One transgression produced guilt to all men. Now, what, what people try to say, try to do, is they're resulted. They're resulted. One transgression produced condemnation to all men. And here's what happens. Remember I said a minute ago, extract from the text. Don't read anything into the text. If you read anything into those two words, they're resulted because if you look at the text in the Greek, you're not going to find that phrase in the original language, right? This is a this is English translators trying to smooth out the Greek here, and what provisionism will do is they'll dump a load of garbage into this text with those two words, claiming that what happens is one transgression led to Everybody committing transgressions, and this is why all men are guilty, because they all individually sinned themselves. But it has nothing to do with the one man and the one transgression sinning. But that is not what the text actually says. The text basically says, through one transgression, guilt, guilt was immediately imputed to all men. All men became guilty because of one transgression. Adam's transgression. That one transgression without any other transgression being necessary made everybody else guilty. That's what Paul was saying here in 5.18. You'll hear the gyrations of people trying to explain this three ways to Sunday. It just doesn't work. Right? Because if you, if you, if you look at the parallel, look at the contrast. Who's he comparing Adam to and those who are in Adam? Christ! Christ, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. To all men. Now, people make try to make a big deal out of this all, but all means all in Adam are guilty. And all means all men in Christ are justified. All men in Adam are guilty. All men in Christ are not guilty. They're innocent because Christ took their sin. If we say that this justification comes through faith alone, faith alone, then we have to admit that the act of Christ on the cross is all that was necessary to justify us. Just like the act of Adam in the garden was all that was necessary to render everyone guilty. Now, how do we know everyone is guilty? Paul says we know that everyone is guilty because everyone dies. Everyone dies. If you, if you do a lexical analysis of this word, it reveals that this is basically a judicial pronouncement 
upon a guilty person. Everyone dies. Romans 5, 16 says this, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. A judicial pronouncement of guilt. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions which resulted in justification. A pronouncement of innocence. Guilt is the result of one transgression according to to Paul. This is what happens to those who are in Adam. Justification results from one act of Christ at the cross. That guilt is removed. Are there exceptions to this? Paul doesn't mention any. The New Testament doesn't mention any. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin... Justice through one man, sin entered the world. Death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. Babies die. So we have provisionists saying babies don't sin. Nevertheless, babies die. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So that's, that's the qualifier. We don't have universalism in Romans chapter 5. All means all in Adam. All means all in Christ. Anyone who understands, biblical interpretation understands that you you. You cannot, if you look at Romans 1, 2, and 3, universalism is precluded. You cannot arrive at universalism, so that all cannot be taken in a wooden literal sense in either case. Because not all men are actually going to physically die, even though that's what it's talking about. When Christ returns, some people will not die. This we must admit. So you have to get inside the actual flow of what Paul is doing there and understand the context of where he's going, what he's saying. Everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, and Adam is guilty, born guilty. Everybody in Christ is innocent because of the work of Christ. Ephesians 2, 3 says, Among them too, we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Divine wrath is the outworking of divine justice. God's wrath cannot be poured out on the righteous. That would be unjust. We are by nature children of wrath. By our very nature. We are born children of wrath. We have that nature in us, not just inclined to sin. We have a sin nature. There's a difference between saying, I have a nature that has inclinations to gravitate to sin, which is really what you're saying, and saying, I have a sinful nature, which means I sin. It doesn't mean I'm inclined to sin. It means I sin. It means I'm a sinner. And I'm a sinner because I'm guilty in Adam. 
This is the curse of the fall. The nature of the human being from birth places us under the wrath of God. Only imputed guilt can account for this reality. God is infinitely just. He does not subject the righteous to wrath. How can one be born with the immediate inclination to sin and not be under wrath? How is that possible? Is it a sin to have an inclination to sin? Who can argue that it is not unlawful for one to have a tendency for unlawful behavior? Even provisionism softening of the depraved human condition fails to remove the guilty stain upon each and every one of us from birth. We are sinners. We don't just have a neutral nature that we, that gravitates to sin uh, over time if, because of bad habits or an environment around us that is sinful. It's not just external, it's internal to us, to who we are, right? Trying to split those hairs actually fails. You don't accomplish anything. If we are not guilty in any way whatsoever, how is it just for God to impose the curse of the fall on humanity? Is God not a just God? What legal basis does God have for subjecting humanity to the condemnation of a nature inclined to sin, and even worse, death? If there is no covenant, and Adam is not the federal head, then God may be such a being that it is impossible to discern righteousness from unrighteousness just from observing his own actions. How would we really know? Right? Our knowledge of God is analogical. It's not univocal, it's not identical, and it's not equivocal in that we, we, when we say God is just, it's so different from what we would understand as just that it communicates nothing to us. So I don't know what that means. God is, the, when we say God is just, that is so different from a just human being that we really can't get our head around. That is not the case. God is just in a way that is far beyond anything we could imagine, but he's also just in a way that we can imagine because we understand something about justice because God has revealed that to us. We know what a just person is. We know how they act. We know what a just act is. So we know that God is something like that and even more. So in summary then, Romans 1 and 3, Ephesians 4, tell us a very different story. They use very different language to describe the condition of sinful humanity. It's far more profound and far far more profound and far more desperate than a mere inclination or tendency to sin. There's no logical way that one can move from the state of, of sinful tendency to the state of guaranteed universal sinful behavior. Logically, that doesn't work. Since the claim of sinful inclination fails to provide explanatory power for the resulting condition we see in reality. And what do we see in reality? But universal sinful depravity. And we see that described in Scripture. Romans 5 uses the word katakrima to describe all those who are in Adam. That word means judicial guilt. 
If a person is an Adam, they are by covenantal arrangement guilty of Adam's sin in judicial terms. You're guilty. All are guilty through one transgression. Paul does not say through one transgression there resulted many transgressions and then many transgressions resulted in guilt. Paul says through one transgression, one act of lawbreaking, one sin, guilt resulted for everybody. If there had not been a second transgression, all would have still been guilty. The fallen human will is never described as free. The fallen human sinner is described as in bondage to sin, unable and unwilling to obey the law of God. The language of bondage and slave is used often to describe the will of the unregenerate person. Provisionism then is wrong to weaken or soften the biblical description of sinful humanity from all are worthy of death to merely a sinful tendency. Provisionism impugns the holiness and righteousness of God by its denial of imputed guilt and rejection of original sin. This is Pelagianism. No man can be condemned. No man has been condemned. <laughs> no man has been condemned by more church councils than Pelagius. No one in the history of Christianity the New Testament is clear that death is our evidence that all men in Adam are universally guilty. And it is equally clear that all men in Christ are universally forgiven and the righteous have life. The reason this is important because it, it, tells, it also demonstrates to us that all men need Christ. That's the point. All men are guilty. And if you want to become not guilty, you must go through Christ. This is biblical Christianity. It's not unique to Reformed theology. This is biblical Christianity. Reject this and you are rejecting the essence of the Christian religion. Moreover, provisionism is wrong in how it perceives the human will and its radical freedom. Scripture paints a description of slavery and bondage repeatedly to describe the fallen human will. And it could not be clearer. All right, I hope that I have said something that uh, would challenge your thinking, would help you maybe clear up some, some issues. Again, if you have questions, you can reach out uh, on, on the Reformation Charlotte Facebook page, um, Reformed Reasons Facebook. Just uh, I think if you search, it'll pop up. Um, you can leave a question in the app if you're listening to this on, on the app in, in Anchor or reformedreasons.com. Uh, pray for us. We are considering also um, augmenting the Reformed rant or maybe shifting a little bit to a video format where we would produce both a video and then also extract the audio for an audio podcast for people who didn't want to look at my ugly mug. But uh, right now, that's just a thought that uh, we're thinking. So uh, pray for us that uh, we'd, we'd follow the will of God. God's will be done. All right. God bless and uh, keep the faith. Stay in the fight. Continue to stand for the truth. Continue to reason through these things and uh, extract your truth from Scripture. Don't insert anything in it. Um, let, the, let the Word of God speak for itself. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com I believe in God our Father I believe in Christ the Son I 
believe in the 